Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. When people walk into that distillery in Healesville, the first thing they say is what an atmosphere, what, what great people, what a warm and welcoming and buzzing place it is. And that's that's the key to making a great hospitality business, which in a way is what we're in anyway. We're trying to make life better by making a nice drink that people can share with friends and have a good time. In today's episode, marketing and PR whiz Stuart Gregor tells how he and a couple of mates became boutique distilling entrepreneurs when they launched their craft gin brand, Four Pillars, from a small distillery they built in Victoria's Yarra Valley just over six years ago. They started out tentatively testing their tiny first batch of gin on a crowdfunding website. It sold out almost immediately. Since then, Stuart Gregor, his partners and Four Pillars haven't looked back, scooping up prestigious awards and big sales along the journey. Haven't looked back, well, that is until the COVID-19 shutdown came along in March 2020. The wild ride just got a lot wilder. Stuart Gregor, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thanks for having me, Helen. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. Oh, thank you. And you too. Now, you are known as a marketing guru. You've been promoting good wines and spirits and beer for 20 years, probably plus. You've become an entrepreneur in the past several years, making and building your own beverage company. So can you give us a picture of what is Four Pillars now and how fast it's grown? Yeah, well, I suppose you're probably right. I think we'll, we'll stick with 20 years. I don't think we need to go for <laughs> I don't need to think that I'm older than that, but to be perfectly honest, it is a little longer than 20 years. But yeah, I guess the genesis of Four Pillars comes in many ways from the experience both myself, Cameron and, and Matt, all three of us had working for others, I suppose, through the 90s and in the early 2000s. Me, you know, I had my own business where I consulted and gave advice from you know, marketing and PR and events and all that sort of stuff to a bunch of wineries and breweries and, and, and also a lot of distilleries. We worked for some of the biggest distilleries in the world. And then Cameron was working a lot of production in the wine industry and he's based in the Yarra Valley and that's where Four Pillars is based today. And then Matt Jones was heading up a huge global consultancy where he was doing a lot of marketing and, and event strategy for huge brands globally. And I guess serendipity and mateship and all that sort of came together. And in 2013, we decided what would it look like if we did it for ourselves. So that's the genesis, I suppose, of Four Pillars. And we, Cameron and I, I suppose, started in the flavor development and what we were going to make and gin and all that type of stuff in, in, in 2012. Matt came along at, at the beginning of 2013 and then we made our first gin in November 2013. So seven years ago, I guess. Not even. Not even seven years. And I guess we tried to make a gin. You know, there wasn't a huge demand. <laughs> when I say there wasn't a huge demand, there was virtually negligible demand for Australian gin at the time. There were a couple of brands, but there was nothing that was, you know, particularly well known. And we thought we'd give it a shot. And we we made our first gin just before that Christmas in 2013. And we entered the San Francisco World Spirits Competition, the biggest competition in the world. We entered in, and the, they announced their awards in March 2014. And we won out what's called a double gold medal, which was basically every judge had given our rare dry gin, our very first product, a gold medal. And I guess in many ways that 
launched us both from our own personal point of view because we thought, crikey, we've made something that's as good as any gin in the world. And mm. it also drew attention to us from retailers in Australia, from bartenders, from export markets, and that really launched us, you know, in, in the early parts of 2014 and fast track to 2020. Everything was going great until the middle of March this year. <laughs> All right, but before we get to that, just so how fast had you grown before March this year from November 2013 when you made your first gin? Well, we'd gone from a business that had made zero gin at the end of 2013 or the start of 2014 to a business that was making in the vicinity of 600,000 bottles a year. Wow. With plans to, to get to a million bottles a year in the next year or two. That may take us a year longer than we had uh, initially hoped. By the end of 2019 or the first few months of 2020, you were selling 600,000 bottles of your Australian gin every year. Correct. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and, and that makes you a globally a very small business, a very small distillery. I mean, if you compare us to Hendrix or Tanqueray or any of the really big gin brands, but it makes us a reasonable player in the domestic market. It makes us the biggest craft spirit brand in Australia. Yep. So you started on what happened in March 2020. Take us through what happened with you. Oh, look, I mean, now when you look back at it, I mean, not you're only looking back at it as a matter of weeks, you know, six or eight weeks, but everything happened so, so quickly. You know, we were, I still remember the Super Bowl. So it was just February 2020 and we had our, our UK agents out and we were planning for all of our growth in, in, in the UK and listings with, you know, Waitrose and the big retailers. And we, we also, the week before the Super Bowl, we'd had our, our US agents out talking about all the bars we were going to be going into, whether it was in New York or California. And, and we'd also done a big planning strategy around what's called global travel retail, huge market of a spirits business, which is duty-free. You know, the airports from Sydney to Melbourne to Changi to Auckland, Heathrow, everywhere else. Our, our global travel retail market was soaring, was growing at over 100% a year. And all of those plans were in place in February. And despite the fact that in early February, I suppose we'd all heard that, you know, this virus had, was coming, but we didn't quite know the impact it would have. And mm. I think all of us thought it will have some impact maybe on our Chinese travellers, you know, who who weren't necessarily gin buyers. They probably tend to be more cognac buyers and more whiskey buyers. And we thought, oh, well, it might have a minimal impact on us at the airport level. And then by the middle of March, when we realised we were going to have to close down our hospitality facility, which was at, at Hillsville, where we employed about 25 hospitality people. We run, a, you know, tastings and events and, you know, it's a distillery door. If you imagine a big, successful winery, Cellar door, that's what it is, but it's, it's certainly the most popular destination in the Yarra. We had queues out the front every weekend. We had to close that. Our global travel retail market in the space of a month went from growing at 100% to actually zero. Wow. And you've got to remember, you know, there is simply no travellers coming in or out of Australian airports now. I mean, there are dribs and drabs, but they've now sh actually shut the travel retail stores. So meaning the duty-free stores, there is zilch business. They've actually closed them. I mean, they remained open for the first few weeks because there were still a lot of Australians coming back, but they're now closed. Obviously, then at the end of March, when we realised all of our on-premise, which is our hospitality businesses, so our bars and restaurants and clubs all around Australia and around the world, we're all going to close. 
meaning that that's about 50% of our market. So, you know, we might be selling into big hospitality groups in Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane, but equally in Los Angeles or Singapore that, that they've all closed and they are all still closed. And we did get a, a, a terrific sort of lift in sales into the Australian trade because there was that period in March where everyone thought, oh, my God, we're not going to be able to buy gin. So they all rushed <laughs> down to Dan Murphy's and Liquorland and BWS and they all went crazy. So we had a great couple of weeks at the end of March. And then we we had started making, and this is where the, the year has become as fascinating as it is, we started making hand sanitizer simply because we have a lot of alcohol in and hand sanitizer it turns out is pretty much alcohol glycerol and 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 maybe some hydrogen peroxide and maybe some aloe vera if you want to make it sort of jelly and we were using it in the early days when people were coming into our distillery door and then a couple of healthcare workers in Melbourne had seen that said hey can you make us some we're running low on hand sanitizer and before you know it over the space of a month we probably made 50,000 litres of hand sanitizer. Wow. We had to. I mean, because we had a lot of one-litre bottles because one-litre bottles are what you sell in travel retail, what you sell at duty-free. So we had 50,000 empty one-litre bottles, which were supposed to be filled with gin to go to airports. And because that market just absolutely deteriorated to pretty close to zero, we thought, well, we'll fill the one-litre bottles with hand sanitizer, and a one-litre bottle of hand sanitizer, rather than a small 100 mil or 200 mil, is exactly what the healthcare people were looking for, yeah. you know, bigger volume. And so we started selling them just to healthcare. And So, sorry, just take me through that process. Firstly, what do they look like? Are they in a beautiful Four Pillars glass bottle? <laughs> yep, they're in a one-litre Four Pillars glass bottle that would otherwise have held gin and be sold at an airport. So has it already got the label printed on the bottle? No, 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 absolutely not. It's a bare bottle. So we have two, I suppose, brands. One is called Take Care, which is the one we made for the health professionals, which is a label that we knocked up in a day. And it just says, Take Care. And it, it is an over 80% alcohol product made to WHO specifications. You know, we learned, we will learn a whole lot about making hand sanitizer in a very <laughs> short period of time. I bet. And then once we sort of tried to satisfy some of the need, and remember that a lot of distilleries in Australia are doing the same thing, the industry itself has done a spectacular job in, dare I say, the word pivoting to helping out the greater need, but also keeping our own people employed. And then we made a second hand sanitizer called Heads, Tails and Clean Hands, which was the slightly fancier one where you use the heads and the tails of a distillation of gin, which is the start and the finish which isn't very nice to drink, but it's got lots and lots of oils in it and got lots and lots of botanical aromatics, if you like. And that one is the one that we sold to the public. So that one's a bit ginier. So if you're wiping that one on your hands, oh. it feels a bit like you've got a little four pillars gin. So sorry, apart from what the uh, a certain leader in the largest epicentre of the crisis, the country called the United States, said about drinking disinfectant, are you actually saying if you had a swig of your upmarket heads, tails and clean hands, it would be verging on gin? Well, <laughs> verging, yeah. I'm just going to point out it has hydrogen peroxide in it. Ah, yes. So don't drink it. Not good for you. No. And it also has glycerol in it. And I'm not suggesting anyone drink it. I mean, I know it goes against the Trump administration health guidelines. <laughs> it's also 80% alcohol. Yeah. So, so it's do not drink it. Just say that warning again, please. Do not drink it. 
don't drink our hand sanitizer, drink our gin. And one of the things that uh, it's funny, social media is such a funny thing. So everyone goes, oh, my God, great, you're making hand sanitizer, aren't you wonderful, aren't you wonderful? But then people went, oh, my God, they're going to stop making gin. We are not stopping making gin. We are are making enough gin to satisfy the markets and hopefully enough hand sanitizer to get us through, let's call it May, and then hopefully we may never make hand sanitizer again because it's not – if I'd wanted to be in – Medical products. Medical products, I would have joined Sanofi or I would have joined Unilever 20 years ago rather than the booze industry. I'm not, I love the fact that we've been able to make it and I've loved the fact that we've been able to engage. This is the, the best story. The 25 pretty much full time casuals we had working in our hospitality business who we had to tell, look, we are going to have to stand you down because our hospitality business is closing. Within one week, they had all their shifts back helping us in the production and bottling line, doing the sanitizer. That is brilliant. That's the best story that came out of it. And we're still, there's still a bit going through, but we are very hopeful that we'll be back to making, making gin over the next month. All right. So just stick with the hand sanitizer at the moment. And we've been having a laugh, but really it's, it's a very important thing you've been doing because that still seems to be one of the products that is in short supply. Take me through just the thought processes, even before the actual production processes of how you grappled with and decided we're going to do this and make hand sanitizer certainly for health workers look it wasn't it wasn't something that was particularly strategized or it wasn't something that was particularly thought through it was just a no brainer we had high proof alcohol we had stills that could process alcohol and we had a a need and we obviously also you know coupled with that we had a a serious decline in yeah. in demand for our gin. So when you've got the assets and the capital sitting there, potentially doing nothing, then you might as well put them to work, particularly putting them to work for what is a great good purpose and what is something that is a profound need. And we were able to do it quickly. We were able to knock out a black and white label and get that printed off as quick as possible. We were able to satisfy all of the legal requirements to make sure that it that it did the job that we were promising that it would do. And then really we just went for it and we decided we would make as much of it as we possibly could in as short a time as as manageable because we knew we had literally had a tsunami of requests, like hundreds, thousands of requests. What, starting off from health workers first or hospitals or? Look, honestly, there was one, it all started with one woman who was a GP in, in Melbourne who had a group of other GPs in Melbourne and I don't know, it's like a Facebook group. And then she was like, well, I've got a hundred GPs in my Facebook group and I've asked them and they all want, they all want it. She was a gin fan. Yeah, could you do it? And we said, yeah, we could do it. And then she sent a note to her hundred who then sent it to a further hundred. And by that stage we'd had a couple of thousand orders and, you know, then hospitals, which what we couldn't believe is that hospitals were ringing us, asking us for it. And we're like, surely there's a provider that can, you know. But but this was it, Stu. There wasn't a provider. Even the known very good hand sanitizer manufacturers just could not keep up with demand apparently. And still some of them, some of the known brands, you don't see. They don't stay on the shelves for very long. Yeah, no, and, and, and look, we do think that the demand is going to continue and we don't really wish to fulfil demand because it's not our core business and it's not something we want to become particularly known for. But you know, if we look at the regimens that are going to be in place now when you're going into hospitality venues or when you're going out, there's going to be a lot of hand sanitizer everywhere you go for a long 
time looking forward for the next couple of years, yeah. but perhaps forever. You know, like you see a bit more of it in America and in Asia than you ever did in Australia, but I think we're going to get used to those dispensers pretty much everywhere. Exactly. So you really didn't have any formal contracts to speak of. It was really a grassroots kind of give me, give me, give me what we need. But then did you start to get a few contracts? We haven't had any contracts. What we did do is we, we got we got asked by Australia Post because we do a lot of business with Australia Post because all of our gin deliveries, you know, if someone orders off our website, we send it out via Australia Post. And Australia Post said, could you make us 10,000 bottles of this? And we said, uh, well, yeah, maybe the week after next because currently we've got a backlog of thousands of orders. And they said, yep, we can wait. We want to we be able to give it to every postie and every post office in Victoria and around the country. So we, that, was, that was a single order, you know, that took us a week or two to, to make, fulfil and, and ship. So, you know, that helped us along to have a, a good April for the product that we were making for the healthcare professionals. We just needed the high-proof alcohol, which we get delivered to us. So we get ours out of – it's a wheat-based high-proof grain alcohol that comes out of New South Wales. Now, there's a huge demand for that at the moment. They had shortages of supply of that because we were a long-term – and as we'd said before, we were one of the bigger customers for grain-based alcohol in Australia – we were able to get access when I think a lot of smaller distilleries weren't or when new players to the market who were trying to, mm. you know, sort of elbow into the hand sanitizer market weren't able to get the pure alcohol. And, and we were able to get that. We also have good big storage at our distillery, which enabled us to hold 30,000 litres of pure alcohol in, in, in underground tanks at our distillery, whereas other smaller distilleries may only have the capacity to hold a few hundred litres or a few thousand litres. So, we had everything that we needed. Who makes grain-based alcohol in New South Wales? Is that farmers or? Yeah. So, well, the, the, the biggest one is a company called Manildra. Oh, yes, of course, who make ethanol as well. They make ethanol. So pure, pure alcohol is ethanol and it's the same process. What we want, what we start our gin with and what all gin distilleries start their gin production with and we redistill pure alcohol is a neutral grain spirit. I mean, some people might use grape spirit and that comes out of the big grape spirit producers are in South Australia, companies like Tarak, they're called. But Manildra make more ethanol than anyone in Australia. Yeah, right. Unlike some other businesses, we didn't have to retool anything because we used our standard bottles, the bottling line didn't have to change at, at all. Because we were able to stick our corks and our labels and our neck tags on it, nothing had to change at all. Because we could use our own boxes, you know, so we were very lucky in the manufacturing. It was days rather than weeks or months that we needed to retool things. And once we got the, I suppose, the recipe right and that we knew that we'd measured everything correctly, then it was simply a matter of how quickly can we bottle it and get it out. And did you do much R&D on that recipe or do you just follow the WHO recipe and that turns out to be great? <laughs> it is not a <laughs> Given our lack, not lack of experience, given our complete and utter inexperience <laughs> in the hand sanitizer, we were not going to try to perfect the World Health Organization's no. <laughs> specific Recipe for hand sanitizer. So, in a way, what you're saying, it was a more minor pivot for your company. I mean, did you need to scale up at all? Well, in many ways, yeah, we did. I mean, because we, we managed to do it at the same time as releasing a new gin. So, in fact, 
our April was without question the craziest month we've ever had in our business because we'd also released a gin called a Changing Seasons Gin, which was a gin that we made as a collaboration with a Japanese distillery called Kyoto. And we had been planning to launch that in May this year. But for whatever reason, we decided to bring it forward to around Easter because we thought, Crikey, we're not going to sell any gin. We want people to have something fun to do. So let's release our new gin now. And then the, the hand sanitizer business just went through the roof at the same time as we had decided to launch a new gin. So in fact, we, in terms of sheer volume of product leaving the distillery, it was the single busiest month we've ever had. And so all of our hospitality area, which had traditionally been for punters to come in and taste gin and everything else, was handed over to production and packaging. So we had people socially distanced who would normally be serving drinks, packing boxes, packing orders of five bottles of sanitizer going to customers who might have been in Sydney or Melbourne or, or Perth or, or, or Melbourne or Adelaide or whatever else. So, And we were also packing in a third-party warehouse we have around the corner. You know, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of manpower for a smallish distillery to pack what might have ended up being somewhere in the vicinity of twenty or 30,000 orders, some of which had one bottle, some had four bottles. Some, interestingly, the doctors often ordered four bottles of hand sanitizer and two bottles of gin. <laughs> so it ended up being a quite a good month for us. The rules from Australia Post is that we you, you cannot, through regular channels, ship more than five litres of 80% alcohol product. Yeah. Otherwise, it becomes a, a, a dangerous good and then you have to have different protocols. So when we sold five bottles, there was a, a hole in the box for the sixth and lots of clever medical professionals realised that if they bought five bottles of hand sanitizer, it would be a shame not to fill that sixth hole with <laughs> a bottle of gin. So we were, we were unexpectedly thrilled with that. So you charged, I mean, you're not a charity, you, you know, I'm lauding you for doing this and switching to a product that Australia really needed and health workers needed in particular. But, you know, how much did you charge? Were you gouging people or were you charging an okay amount? No, we were, it was $25 a litre for healthcare professionals. Gosh, that's pretty good. It actually is. In fact, in hindsight, we I've paid, probably should have. Yeah, I've paid 25 litres. At, uh, not a, sorry, I paid $25 at the local chemist for about a probably a half a litre. Yeah, probably for 250 mil or 500 mil. Yeah, yeah. So it was $25 a litre for the healthcare professionals and it was $40 a litre for the general public, which was the more fancy product, if you like. And look, the pricing was, again, we had no real idea what the pricing was. And we very rarely, occasionally people would say, well, we want it for free. And we said, well, you're not going to get it for free because we still intend, and this is, you know, pre-job keeper or anything like that. We need to keep all of our people working and paid. There's nothing in it for us to give it all away. And not a single healthcare person arced up about $25 a litre. I think they immediately realised that is good value. They're doing the right thing. They're not gouging. When we get out of this, which we will, if people turn around and go, oh, that four pillars, those bastards, they were trying to gouge us for hand sanitizer. I'm not going to buy their bloody gin and tonic. That does our business no good. For, for what is an opportunistic couple of months of hand sanitizer sales and a small amount of profit, why would you ruin years of goodwill by charge at stupid prices. Just staying on this subject, you say on your website, and you're very open and, and love communicating, obviously, with people who visit your website, but that you're guided during this crisis and, and shut down by four principles. What are those four principles? 
looking after our staff, looking after our customers, and more importantly, making sure that we don't regress and we don't sort of disavow ourselves from the promises we made as a business to everyone, to all of our stakeholders over the years, simply because we're in a crisis. And I think it's really important that you behave better and you behave more, not nobly, but you behave with greater integrity when things are challenging than even you would when things are good because it really proves the measure of a man and the measure of a brand and the measure of a business how you behave when circumstances are difficult. And we need them to believe that we're, a, we're an ethical business that cared about them as much when they were no effective use to us, when they couldn't go out and buy our drinks. Yeah. If you're looking at it from a, tr- you know, a transactional relationship between a producer and a consumer, we want to be something a lot more than that. You know, we want to be something that when we do get out of this, and, and, and this is as much for our partners in the trade, because as much as we're having a difficult time, it's, we, we've been lucky with this hand sanitizer, but for our mates, like our best customers and oftentimes our best friends who are the people in the trade, like the hospitality operators, the bar owners, you know, the restaurateurs, the people who, who you know, sell our product and lovingly tell their customers every day that if they're going to have a gin and tonic, they really should try this Four Pillars stuff. They're the ones doing it unbelievably tough at the moment. Two things I think will happen. One is that we realise now that how important the local market is simply because they're not going to be able to travel to international markets and a lot of other international markets have done significantly worse in this than we have and are going to have a lot much longer tail than we have. And if you just look at our our two major export markets of the UK and the US, I mean, they are in deep strife right now. And where Australia is today is so far ahead of where the UK and the US are today. You know, it, it makes us realise that we're going to have to sell more in New Zealand, we're going to have to sell more in Australia, we're going to have to really concentrate on our domestic market because our travel retail market could take two or three years to recover. It could take five years to recover. You know, we had just done a big bit of business with Changi in Singapore, you know, one of the most important airports in the world to do, you know, some more four-pillars promotion and you know, and they've, they've closed down two of their terminals and they're unlikely to reopen anytime soon. So You said there were two things that will happen about this. One, concentrating on the domestic market. Can you remember what the second one was? Yeah, I, I think sticking to your knitting. The point I was sort of trying to make around us, doing less fun stuff on the fringe. I mean, I think what's going to come out of this is that all of us, sort of taking it from a sort of a macro humanistic approach, all of us indulge because we were able to in a lot of fun and frippery and, and, and stuff on the side that wasn't particularly essential, but it was great fun. And it was uh, essentially um, we did it because we were lucky enough to be able to do it, whether or not that was buying expensive clothes or flapping at great expensive flash restaurants or, or, you know, those millions of things that I think in this last six weeks we've realised we can probably live without. And I think the consumer sentiment coming out of this may be a bit like that. Mm. I think eventually we might return to what we were pre, let's call it pre-COVID. But I feel like a lot of people are going to go, yeah, do I need that extra fancy cocktail in that super luxe place? Or can I do with a, a more simple drink with friends in a maybe at home or maybe mm. at something a bit more local? We definitely think Australians are going to travel a lot less and that changes our focus on our sales through airports. Take me back to when you started Four Pillars with your two other co-founders. 
What was your first project when you set out with this company? <laughs> the first thing we had to do is buy a still. <laughs> so that's the actual first project was, well, well we need, we're going to need a machine <laughs> to make this gin. So where should we buy this machine from and what would it mean? And we, we did a little bit of, you know, in, internet investigation into buying a still and we realised that the best stills were in, made in Germany. Cameron and I went on a now notorious, if not slightly infamous, road trip in the United States where there's a very burgeoning uh, big craft distilling business in the US, particularly in what you'd call, the, I suppose, the Pacific Northwest and California. So we, mm-hmm. we went up to a distillery in Washington State where they had one of these stills and we did a couple of days with them just working the still and learning how it worked. And then we drove from Portland, Oregon to LA, which is a couple of thousand kilometres. It's a, it's, a, it's a big drive. And we visited literally every small micro distillery or craft distillery we could find and we tasted their spirits and we talked to them about how they did it and we found that all the good ones had these same stills, the, the Karl stills that we love from Germany. So we had a pretty good road trip. We decided we had the right still and in that time we also had figured out the sorts of gin that we wanted to make. Some of the American gins frankly tasted like sort of flavoured vodka. They didn't have the juniper notes that we knew real gin had to have but then we didn't want to make London dry gin. We didn't want to make gin that tasted like Tanqueray or Gordon's or, or Beefy. So during that first six months, we found this nice line, I suppose, of what we called modern Australian gin is something that, that had some Asian and Pacific influence as well as the best from the Mediterranean and Europe as well as Indigenous Australian, you know, botanicals. But, I mean, when you started then, if you're already doing this world trip to buy, you know, a fantastically engineered piece of equipment in Germany and you're going to the United States to look at the best gins, was it always in your mind a big vision or was it just the smaller vision, oh, this will be a bit of a hobby for me? So, yeah, that's a good question. And I mean, the fact of the matter is that Cam and I had been doing hobbies on the side, if you like. You know, we've been long since uh, early 2000s had been. We had a hobby wine business on the side, which was never particularly serious, and we would make some wine and sell it to mates and and go on a few wine lists, and it was a bit of a hobby. And I think Cameron in particular had decided, let's do something serious. And so for that reason, we raised some money. We we went, we raided some friends and family and we found some investors to give us, to put some money into the project. We put a lot of our own money into the project. So sorry, you didn't borrow from banks. You borrowed and begged from family and had your own money because <laughs> you were all well established by then. Yeah, look, I'm telling you, if you <laughs> thought you could borrow from banks for a startup gin distillery in 2013, you're kidding yourself. They would not give us really? a, wouldn't give us a dime. They still, I mean, I don't want to get into bank bashing. You know, we've, we've been down that track, but, you know, they talk about wanting to support small business and startups and all that sort of stuff. But gosh, a lot more of it is lip service than it is reality. They still make it very difficult for small businesses to get finance. I understand their business models and I'm not a particular critic of the bank, but you have to go through other ways to raise equity because debt is not really an option. So how much did you, yeah, how much did you raise? Roughly at that time to start. Well, a million, million bucks. A million bucks. That's a lot of friends. It is, but two thirds of that was from the three founders because we knew that you know you had to go in. I mean, you had to remortgage your house. You had to have a you know convincing argument, you know, discussions with your partners, and say, look, if we're going to do this, we have to do this properly, and we think there's a market for it, and more than anything, we think it's going to be enormous fun. 
and it just might work. I'd started up my own PR and marketing business, Liquid Ideas, um, in 2000. So I, I was already established. I'd built a business from scratch before. I also had built a business with my sister, which is a, a travel business based out of you know, regional Queensland, out of Noosa, and, and that had become very successful as well. So I was pretty confident that I had a, a reasonable grasp on how to start a business from scratch. Yeah, Cameron had not done that, and Matt had sort of done a bit of it and was raring to go. And I was probably the one agitating that, you know, we could do this and we should do it in a, in, in, in a big-ish way, I suppose. And given our experience, like we had a rare confluence of three guys, all of whom were ready to do it at that time, but also who had all the – who ticked all the boxes from understanding production to marketing to distribution to packaging and great relationships in the trade. And I think that's probably what I brought to the business was I knew most of the important players in the business in Australia, whether they whether they were at Dan Murphy's or whether they were at you know, Maryvale or, or whatever. You know, we had, a, we had a pretty good relationship there. So it was always going to give us a bit of a head start. Then we went and got some money. Then we sold the first batch on Possible, you know, on a crowdfunding site. And that's probably the day when we realised, I still remember sitting in bed just scrolling through the possible campaign where I think from memory we offered our first batch of maybe only 250 bottles and I think it sold out in three days. And we went, wow, there are people, not all of them. I remember looking through because you could literally look at every individual order. And I remember getting so excited when someone's name popped up that I didn't know. I thought, wow, there's actual strangers buying our gin. They're not just all friends and family. (laughs) So that's when I think I thought, right, we could actually have have something on on the go here. And, yeah, I guess it kind of it went from then. And, I mean, if you fast forward to, well, I suppose about this time last year, well, maybe maybe a, a couple of years ago where we started getting some serious inquiries from some global businesses about our business. And, you know, we ended up agreeing to take an investment from, from Lion, who have turned out to be fantastic partners about, you know, just over a year ago, which has enabled us to, again, reinvest even more into the business to take it on an extra growth curve. Yeah. Did you need that? Did you need their cash and their know-how to really push this expansion? In short, yes. What we were able to do is we were able to get all of our original investors a magnificent return on their original investment, which was huge day for us because many of them were actually just good mates of ours who dropped a little bit of their own money into our business on the hope that they wouldn't just own a, a small part of a gin distillery, but one day they might get a few of their bucks back. And we were able to do that and also hold on to half of their shareholding. Lion gave us a really compelling story around their wantingness to get into the into the spirits business. You know, they're, they're a brewer. You know, they're the most influential craft brewer in Australia by far. And we also chose Lion because we had other uh, other big multinational distilling businesses interested in us, but we worried that we would be somewhat subsumed by other bigger brands in their portfolio, whereas with Lion, we were going to be the big brand. We were going to be their first big foray into spirits. And you know what? They've turned out to be fantastic partners and really, really just great people. Mm. So you and your co-founders are going to continue to be there and very much involved. You obviously still own 50%. The figure around at the time was that you sold the 50% for, what, around $42, $43 million? (laughs) It's a remarkably precise number. (laughs) 
But, yeah, you know, those were the numbers at the time and, you know, there's probably a really large ballpark and that number's inside it. Yeah. (laughs) But suffice to say, you and your partners made some good money out of the sale of 50%. Yes. Suffice to say that it was a good day and I, um, I can still pay my children's school fees. How do you convince consumers that you're still, you know, you're a craft, you're a boutique distiller who takes a lot of care, who makes it special for consumers' palates, and yet you want to sell a lot of product and you're now with a company that can mass sell your product? It goes back to a lot of the things I said earlier, which is about maintaining your credibility, your integrity, your initiative. I think, I think one of the things that stands us in good stead is that we've never been, you know, you said before, we're very transparent about what we do. We've never tried to hide our production. In fact, our production is at, our, at the forefront of everything we do. Come and see how we make the gin. One of the things we think about, a, if you were becoming an industrial-scale gin distiller, you wouldn't want people seeing the giant machines you have out the back making your gin. And we're very, we, we very much want to celebrate how we make our gins. And every single gin we've ever made, and will continue to make comes from the same distillery in Hills, were made by one of three different people, and it has not changed and will not change whilst we're still in the in, in the driving seat, if you like. And the proof is in the pudding. People are smart. This is a smart generation of consumers. If they go, Four Pillars is a bit shit now, it used to be so delicious, then they have every right to go and buy someone else's gin. There are 200 distilleries in Australia currently making gin. and we are one of them and we hope that we're still the best of them and we hope that we continue to experiment, we continue to deliver really delicious gin at a fair price, that we can hopefully one day again host great events and have people to visit our distillery and show them what we do. You know, last year, till the end of 2019, we won the world world's best international gin distillery at the IWSC in November last year, which does feel like a long time ago. <laughs> Now, but that's the International Wine and Spirits Competition that's been going for 50 years. That is the the London-based competition that is the most important in the world. And there are tens of thousands of gin distilleries and they picked us out to be their distillery of the year. And that has never happened for an Australian gin distillery. In fact, it's never happened for an Australian distillery in any of the categories. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It proves we're doing something, right, if nothing else. (laughs) Yeah. Stu, just briefly, I mean, botanicals are obviously really important to craft a boutique gin. Do you grow your own junipers, coriander, whatever you need that goes into your gin? Well, we grow bits of it, but we certainly can't supply the sorts of quantities that we need now. No. So where do you get your junipers from? Well, everyone's juniper in Australia comes from pretty much sort of Eastern Europe, so or Mediterranean Europe, if you like, so Macedonia, Bulgaria. Some of it comes from southern Italy, but we get a lot of ours through Macedonia, and it is the best in the world. We actually pay a lot for our juniper, the highest amount that you can pay in the world. There is a huge, you can imagine, the the extra demand in juniper over the last few years as gin has boomed, not just in Australia, but in the UK and the US and Africa, Asia, Spain, you know, Spain, the biggest gin market in the world. We use our lemon myrtle is locally grown, obviously. Um, We use some native finger limes. We use some Tasmanian pepperberry that is grown in, you know, in the northern parts of Tasmania. But our juniper absolutely has to be imported. There's no common juniper even in Australia. 
Stu, if we go back further, just fairly briefly, what was your life like growing up? I mean, did you come from an entrepreneurial family? Were your folks in business? Were they into building things or the hospitality game? Oh, not really. Although my dad was a chartered accountant, actually, and ended up being sort of a general manager, managing director of a bunch of different businesses. And my mum was in the travel industry. She was originally a, a trolley dolly for Qantas. And that's my sister has followed her into the travel business. And I love the travel industry as well. And we have a little business called Gregor and Lewis up in Noosa, which is the travel business. And I suppose my dad, one bit of advice he gave me when I was, you know, toying at the end of school about what, what to do. One of the offers that you often got was an internship or a traineeship at, at one of the big four accounting firms as it was in those days. And he told me unequivocally not to get into accounting, <laughs> which is what he'd done. I think he saw he's something a little more renegade in me. And I went off and became a journalist. And I, I skipped university straight out of school. I've subsequently done a couple of degrees, but I skipped it and I went straight to the news floor at the old Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mirror as a copy boy. Like I took a very old-fashioned approach, I suppose, and wanted to work on the floor of the newspapers, which was one of the great experiences in life. What's the biggest thing you've learned on this journey to build Four Pillars, briefly? Uh, You know, the best thing I've learned is that you need the best possible people around you. One of the things I've learned from Four Pillars is that, you know, if you have an export strategy, you need to rely on other people to sell your products because you can't be in the bar selling Four Pillars to the guy in Manchester or the guy in Thailand or anywhere else. So you've got to have great people who share the passion and it's not that easy to find. When people walk into that distillery in Healesville, the first thing they say is what an atmosphere, what, what great people what a warm and welcoming and buzzing place it is. And that's that's the key to making a great hospitality business, which in a way is what we're in anyway. We're trying to make life better by making a nice drink that people can share with friends and have a good time. What advice would you give to those who would love to try and do what you've done? <laughs> if it's about starting a distillery, I would take a big fat pause on it right now <laughs> because, <laughs> because frankly... There's a lot of distilleries that have started up in the last few years and it's going to be a very tough time for us all getting out of it because we're all going to be fighting for the same customers who, frankly, may not even be there on the exit from this. So I would say be know your industry. One of the things that terrifies me are people who say, I want to open a distillery. It looks great. Everyone, how hard can it be? I can make gin. But you've got to understand the industry, everything from who your customers are to how to package it to what makes your product different to how can I present my product be really, really knowledgeable about the, the industry that you want to go into. What are you obsessed about at the moment? Ozark. Ah. Oh, my God. I, I'm a late comer to Ozark and it's unreal. I actually just last night watched the last episode of the first series oh. and apparently it gets even better. Don't give anything away. <laughs> Gee, we're watching a lot of Netflix at the moment, aren't we all? (laughs) We sure are, and bonding with each other at home. We are, we are. I say that as I sit at my daughter's bedroom doing this because (laughs) she's in year 10, she's commandeered the living room. My son is in his bedroom and my wife is working out of the kitchen. Oh. So that's how the that's how the Gregor family are managing working from home. It's an interesting dynamic. Well, it sounds like a great family dynamic. Stuart Gregor, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thanks, thanks for having me, Helen. 
Since I recorded that interview with Stuart, certain hospitality restrictions are being lifted and Stu Gregor and his partners are opening, in a responsible COVID way, a Sydney outpost. Stu tells me the Four Pillars Laboratory and a cocktail bar will open in Surrey Hills on June 12. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.